0: Tonight, the big question. If you turn to Romans chapter 3, we'll pick up in verse 21. This is one of those passages of Scripture that comes at a time after nearly three full chapters of the Lord God in heaven reminding us here on this earth of how bad it really is how desperately we need God. And as we pick up in verse 21, we find this incredible statement. This moment that is very much like the continental divide here in the United States. Depending on which side that raindrop falls on, it's either going to go to the east or it's going to go to the west. And where you fall on this question determines whether you're going to go to heaven or hell. Whether you're going to receive God's only remedy to our condition. The verdict is in. All of mankind is guilty. Are you going to receive God's offer of grace? Or are you going to continue to try and earn God's favor by your own works or merit? And so verse 21 is that watershed. It's that dividing line in human history. In every single life that's ever walked this earth. It's the place at which you say, but now. You see, there was a before, and there can be an after, and the but now is where that begins. Where that raindrop of grace lands on you. Read with me, if you would, verse 21, here in Romans 3. The greatest question that any of us can ever ask. But now, the righteousness of God, apart from the law, is revealed. Being witnessed by the law and the prophets... Even the righteousness of God. And so, for three solid chapters, the painful condition of every lost soul, everyone who has ever lived, that verdict handed down from God, Jeff is guilty. Jeff has sinned. Jeff has not by his own merits been able to nor will he ever be able to meet the righteous standard of a holy God. Witnessed by the law and the prophets. You see the Old Testament was God's wonderful explanation Of the problem and the depth of that problem. The law revealed the sinful condition of mankind's heart. The law also revealed the inability for anyone to ever meet that standard. The Jewish people received the law. They were then also given the prophets. And so the prophets, one after another, testified of the one who would come to solve the problem. And yet that one did not come in the time of the prophets, or in the time of the writing of the Old Testament, as we would call it. But clearly, from Adam, in Genesis chapters 2 and 3, to Malachi the prophet, God sent the same message. Mankind's a mess. And mankind by himself is incapable of meeting my righteous standard. So condensed were the Ten Commandments that the Ten Commandments alone were sufficient for all of us to go, I Am lost I do okay, maybe six out of the ten, maybe seven covet thy neighbours goods Thou shalt not bear false witness Kinda leaves you hopeless. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. How many of mankind's fellow soldiers do have we passed that have followed after the God of fame or fortune? The God of power. Witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God. Through faith in Christ Jesus to all who believe. You see, the righteousness of God is now going to be offered. And here's the offer, by faith to all who believe in Christ Jesus as Lord. Not by works, not by religion, not by laws, by a gift. For there is no difference. And now we find the beginning of what we call the Roman's road. Verse 23, for all have sinned, there's the verdict, all have sinned. And here's the issue, and fall short of the glory of God. Every human being misses the mark of perfection. Some miss it by a little bit. And some miss it by a whole lot. But all have sinned. The mark is the perfection of a holy God absolute perfection. No sin whatsoever. None. Zero. Not in an attitude, not in an action. Being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. The verdict is in. The pronouncement is made. Nobody's immune. Nobody's outside. The only way to find that place that is the place that we call salvation is in the place of grace. Whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood. God himself paying the righteous demands of the law with the blood of Jesus. God seeing your condition and mine and saying there is no way in the universe, given all the time that will ever exist, that Jeff could clean up his own mess ever. And so God steps from eternity into time as Jesus Christ, our Savior, God's only Son. And He says, Because all have sinned, the only way to save them is to pay the price myself the blood of Jesus. Notice how we acquire it through faith. Not through works, through faith alone, in Christ alone. God's grace given to us as a gift alone. To demonstrate his righteousness. Jesus is a demonstration of the righteousness of God, the perfection of God, the love of God. God's hand reaching out to you, God's hand reaching out to me, God saying to you, and God saying to me, Jeff, I love you so much that in spite of who you are and in spite of what you've done, I am going to offer you redemption, not based on your own merit, your own worthiness your own abilities, your own mind, your own mental faculties to understand, I'm going to offer you a free gift that you cannot ever understand or earn. You can only receive it. Demonstrating his righteousness. Because in his forbearance, God looks at the debt of your life and mine and he says, I will not foreclose on your life I will forbear with you I will offer you grace God has passed over the sins that were previously committed now I don't know when your first recollection of your sin life began But I can remember back to mine. I don't think I was much over three or four before I could remember. I actively engaged in behaviors I knew were wrong. God has been forbearing with mankind since mankind stepped onto this planet. And not just you. Maybe you're good. Maybe you're here tonight. And you're morally fairly upright. God's been forbearing with you, passing over everything that you've ever done from the time you were able to be accounted for the things that you were doing to this very moment, God is passing over your sins. I'm not going to exact the price from you. And if you're here tonight and you don't know God, it's so that you can know him. And if you do know God, it's because of his grace. God has passed over those sins that we previously committed to demonstrate that in the present time, his righteousness... So his righteousness could come into view for us. Not his justice. Not his judgment alone. Not how filthy and rotten we are. But clearly his righteousness. He's already told us the problem. And now he's offering us the solution. That he. Who's the he? Let me give you a couple of clues. It's not you. It's not me. The he likely, if you have a new King James Version, is capitalized. Gives it away a little bit. He. Our Savior. Might be just. You see, because God's got a problem... And his name is Jeff. Jeff is not just. Jeff is imperfect. But in order to spend eternity with God, which God wants, Jeff has to be just. So somebody's got to pay. Because I'm guilty. The verdict is in. So God can't simply say, I don't care in order for God to remain just, the price has to be paid. And I can't pay it. And the justifier. So what does God do? He says, Jeff, you can't pay it. But I have to get it. So I'm going to pay it for you. He is both the just one. And he is the one that takes care of the cost of my sin, the justifier. Of the one. And only of the one. Acts chapter 4 verse 12. There is no other name under heaven. Given among men. Whereby we must be saved. Very exclusive. And yet, open to everyone. To as many as received, to them he gave. This question has been asked since man first set foot on this earth. If you'd turn your attention to the book of Job, if you'd go there to chapter 9, Let's take a little journey. We know the story of Job chapter 1. Job was a righteous man, so much so that God bragged about him. Amen? That's the story. Have you considered my servant Job? Now, in thinking about that, I've often wondered, that's kind of a setup on old poor Job. Amen? That's like asking the devil to kick him through the goalpost of life. Like, field goal, Job through the up- upright, score. Look where Job gets. Verse 3, Job chapter 9. If one wished to contend with him, that would be God. He could not answer him one time out of a thousand. For God is wiser in heart and mighty in strength, who has hardened himself against him and prospered. He removes mountains. and they do not know. When he overturns them in his anger, he shakes the earth out of its place and its pillars tremble. In other words, God grabs the earth and rattles it like a rattle. He commands the sun and it does not rise. Remember, he did that to give Joshua an extra day. You remember that story? We'll just set the clock back a little bit. He seals off the stars and he alone spreads out the heavens. We now know, and Dr. Lyle will share that with you. He's, By the way, I figured I've been talking about astrophysics, so I figured we ought to have an astrophysicist come clean up my mess. So we have an astrophysicist coming to teach you. But we know that the heavens are actually expanding. Job said that almost 4,000 years B.C., 6,000 years ago. God, in the life of Job, says, look, the heavens are expanding. And treads on the waves of the sea and made the bear and Orion and the Pleiades. And by the way, Astronomy didn't come along for another 3,000 years to where we could actually use a telescope to look up and see. Johannes Kepler, Galileo. And then they would have finally realized that there was something out there other than pinpricks in the fabric of heaven. The chambers of the South. You see, up until that time, Mankind believed that the earth was the center of the universe. Of course, we now know that's not true. God is the center of the universe. And everything is made by him and for him, and without anything was made, nothing was made apart from that which God made. He does great things past finding out, and yes, his wonders are without number. And if he goes by me, I do not see him. Doesn't that boggle your mind? Because where two or more are gathered, he is, Scripture says, therein, they're midst. The Lord passed by you, and yet you've never seen him actually. Passed by Job. I do not perceive him. Because God is who He is. Job actually wondered how could I be right with that kind of God? What will it take? What can I do? Job understood fully. And he would finally come to that place I know that my Redeemer lives, and I will stand on this earth. And I will see him face to face. And by the way, that promise is your promise. Your Redeemer lives. And one day you'll stand on this earth. If you're here tonight and you know Jesus, you'll stand on this earth and see Jesus face to face. (laughs) Amen? By his grace. Not this place. Amen? It's not because you came to church. It's because Jesus came to earth and died in your place. And died in your place. The Bible is actually filled with this question. One of Job's friends will actually ask it in chapter 25. How then can a man be just with God? If God is who we believe he is and he is who he says he is. And He is what we know about Him. Remember chapter 1, what does it say? That the creation itself testifies of God. So man has been able to know that there is a God in heaven since day one. Nobody has been without a witness. From aboriginal peoples living in the middle of the outback to isolated peoples on islands in Micronesia, to places that we have never yet sent people to speak the gospel message, God has been faithful to them by the Spirit to reveal to them through the creation the one and only Son of God, so that they could believe by faith. Because if God did not do that, then His Word is not true. Because His Word plainly says that He desires for all men to come to the knowledge of repentance so if he doesn't offer it to everyone he's not being truthful with us so the creation itself is one of those ways and back in those days they waited by faith they had enough understanding to believe and they waited in faith believing that would be our brother Abraham Our sister Sarah, Rahab, Joshua. Imagine all the people that you're going to get to meet that didn't have the full revelation, but they had enough to believe that Messiah would come and God would keep his word. John the Baptist, fearful warnings about God's judgment. The multitudes were actually questioning him there in Luke chapter 3, saying, what then shall we do? Same question. The rich young ruler, teacher, what good things shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? Same question. Peter's message we just covered in Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. Brethren, what shall we do? Saul on the road to Damascus, what shall I do, Lord? The Philippian jailer, Sirs, Paul, Silas, what must I do to be saved? You see, that question is the question. That is the question. But now, You believe in but now. That point in time when the answer comes into view. Sometimes you ask yourself the question (laughs) why is man inherently religious? Have you ever asked yourself that? A vast majority of all people, every tribe, every tongue, every nation, Every language. It matters really not. When we excavate archaeologically around the globe in every locale, do you know what we invariably find? Religious artifacts. Almost without exception, we find two things garbage and idols. Mankind likes to take care of himself. That's the reason for the garbage. And he's innately attuned to worship someone or something. God put that there. But now, that's the reason. It's why religion is so common. Man has a sense of loneliness, emptiness, meaninglessness, it's reflected in our literature, it's reflected in our movies, it's reflected in television, it's reflected in books. Man is searching for answers. But now is the watershed moment. What are you going to do with the answer? Romans chapter 1 reminds us every one of us have some understanding of these issues. Scripture makes that clear. And yet, here comes the answer. As far as the way of salvation is concerned, let me make something very clear to you. There are exactly two paths that mankind seeks to salvation. One is works. In other words, what can man do to reach God? And that is the vast majority of the world. The other is exactly the opposite. God from heaven reaches down and touches man. That's God's grace. So you have works and you have grace. And every one of man's religions, save biblical Christianity, is at some level works. That includes intelligence and understanding and knowing and doing and moving around and working and feasts and days of the week and months and years and all kinds of, all that stuff. And over here, you got God saying, wait a second. I am both the just one and the justifier. And you need to believe in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ to be saved. All those works can't save you. And in that sense, it's very much a God-sized problem, isn't it? It's a problem that only God could solve. And let me tell you why. Because if you talk to two people who do not know the Lord about how to become right with God, assuming that they believe that there is a God and they need to be right with him, assuming that they're not an atheist or an agnostic. But assuming that they believe there is a God and that there is a God, that they have some responsibility to him, if you ask them how it is that that happens and they do not know the way of salvation, grace through faith, they will give you all kinds of stuff you need to do. It'll very often be things that you should not do. And very often it will also include things you should do. And it becomes all about the doing. When in fact your Bible says it was already done, it is finished. To tell us die. That's the beauty of it. That's the glory of it. That's the wonder. It's a God-sized problem. It's interesting in Greek and Roman, but principally Roman poets and Greek actors. in, In Greek acting, they very often had some type of a situation where eventually one of the Greek pantheon of gods would have to come on the scene to solve the problem. Very normal. So here would come Mercury or, you know, Zeus would step out of, off of Mount Olympus and boom, there he would do something amazing. But interestingly enough, they never brought God onto the stage unless it was a God-sized problem. So if it was just a normal thing and a man could battle it out or tough it out or a woman could get through that problem, they would always let man work through it. They had assigned God-sized things and only then would God come into the picture. Can I tell you that your sin is a God-sized problem from day one? It needs God stepping onto the stage of your life. And there is no other way. There's exactly one way. And here's why. God's righteousness is so different from all of the kinds of human righteousness. First of all, because of its source. God's righteousness comes from God. It's not from rearranging the junk of this earth. It literally is the substance of him. That's not from here. That's from there. So that righteousness has to come from there. It can't come from here. Because if it's here, it's part of the creation which has been polluted or part of us which has been born in sin. So either way, it has to be from heaven. A second thing. It's different in its very essence. You, You see, God in essence is so comprehensive As to include every aspect and area of life. You see, some people say that they're outside of the need for God's grace. When God says, no, no human being meets my divine standard, so everyone is in need of my righteousness. That's why it says there's none righteous, not one. That's why it says all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. It's a completely different kind of righteousness. It's not your life compared to my life. It's not my life compared to your life. It's not this church versus another church. It's not us as a group of churches compared to some other denomination. It is us compared solely, completely, and totally only to God. That's the essence of God's righteousness. It has nothing to do with how we perceive man should be in order to be okay. It is what God has declared to be true. Thirdly, it's unique in its duration. Here's the crazy thing as people, we kind of say, well, if we do this for two or three days in a row, I'm free. I haven't sinned in a week. I did okay with that thing. I was really in bondage. You know, I used to drink every single day. But now I only occasionally drink. Every once in a while I kind of have a bender, but, you know, I'm a lot better. You see, God's duration of his essence, of his perfection, and of the source which comes from heaven is eternal. It's not, can you be okay for even the, let's say you live a long time, the 110 years that you live on this earth. You make it to the the very most elderly that people generally get on this planet right now. If you could from day one to the end of your days, conceivably somehow, be mostly perfect, you would still be imperfect in the duration because it needs to go all the way into eternity. And because you weren't totally perfect, you would carry that over just a bit past you take your last breath and boom, you're in trouble. You have to be perfect in eternity. That's a different kind of righteousness, amen? You and me start comparing our stuff. Probably one of us is going to win the righteousness battle, right? You understand what I'm saying? You get what I'm getting at? You talk to someone else, you may look really good. Compare yourself to God. You're going to come up a tad short. And you're going to come up a tad short for eternity without Jesus. What does the answer look like? several things let's look at the face of righteousness this is what righteousness looks like it's found here in this passage pick pick up in in verse 21 but now apart from the law the righteousness of God has been manifested you see God's righteousness is apart from legalism God's righteousness is apart from your ability to do works God's righteousness is apart from your judging someone else about whether they keep the law or don't keep the law. God's righteousness is so far above that that it's even if you can legalistically keep many of the things that you find in Scripture, you're still going to end up on the short end. God, in essence, in the first three chapters has backed all of mankind over here into this corner. And said, there's no way out of that corner. You can't get out of there unless you go through me. You can try and weasel your way out. You can try and go up. You're not going to get there. You can try and go down. You're not going to get there. Right, left, isn't going to matter. You're in the corner. You've got to go out. And the only way out is through Christ. He said, Look, you're all toast. There's no legal effort that you can undertake. And so he uses the law as an example. Because that's what we do as human beings, right? We start to judge one another based on whether you're better than that person. So you pull out the law and say, well, I'm not a fornicator. I'm not an idolater. You know, I haven't been drunk in three or four years. I'm, you know, so I'm good. You're bad. We do the legalism thing. And yet scripture says it's apart from the law. The law has nothing to do with it. The only thing the law can do is make sure that you understand that you're messed up. In and of itself, that's all the law can do. Paul wrote to the church of Galatia, it's a tutor, it's a schoolmaster under Christ. It tells you exactly how bad you are. You pull out the law of God, whoops, I messed up. You see, the law has no capacity, no ability. Works have no capacity, no ability. Your goodness has no capacity, no ability Your knowledge of the Bible, can I tell you this? Your knowledge of the Bible has no capacity to save you. Did you know that? It's not the knowledge of the Word of God that saves you. It is grace working through faith that saves you. It's not whether you understand it or not. It's a gift from God. And yes, we'll get to in a moment. You need to understand it. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. But it is not even your Bible that saves you. There are people that think if I just get a bigger Bible, I'm good. I was one of those people. I'm, I'm getting me a bigger one because I look, you know, my arm hurts from carrying that puppy. It's like a big, huge, you know, like a fatty, like one of the desktop ones, you know. It's like, kind of must come out of that. there is no thing you can do that can save you. No action. Paul totally understood that. Galatians 3, verses 10 and 11. For as many are of the works of the law are under the curse, now that no one is justified by the law before God is evident, for the righteous man shall live by faith. You can't get there. Legalism can't do it. A second thing, that God's righteousness is built on his revelation. You see, it's not just that you're not going to be a legalist, but God's righteousness is built on what he said about his righteousness, not what we think about his righteousness. You see, some people think that if I just joined this organization, I call it salvation by organization, If I join this group of people, if I hang out with them, then kind of by osmosis, like the old things we used to do in school, where you would take a carrot and put it inside of a glass of water with food dye in it, and pretty soon the carrot would turn purple. That's called osmosis. At the cellular level, that dye is being sucked into the plant, and thereby it actually moves through the plant, and eventually will turn the whole carrot purple. A lot of people think that salvation can come that way. By osmosis. No, it comes by revelation. God has to reveal himself to you. He has to tell you that Jesus Christ, his only son, died on Calvary's cross. Specifically to save you from your sins. And you have to believe that that is true. It's not you simply reading some passages... And going, well, somebody told me I need to know this. I now know it, so I'm saved. There's a big difference, and the element there is faith. You see, God's righteousness is built on his revelation about himself. And so what he did to set the stage for us is he gave us the law, and he gave us the prophets. He gave us the whole Old Testament and started revealing what he was going to do. He said, my only begotten Son is going to come into this world. And he told us that not just in the New Testament, he told us that in the Old Testament. David, writing in Psalm 16, prophesied that the grave would not hold Messiah. The 22nd Psalm speaks of the crucifixion. thousand years before Jesus set put on this earth. So he started setting the stage, revealing what it would look like when Jesus came and gave us specific details about it. You see, God's been very, very fair because he has revealed his plan of salvation, his word says, from age to age. That's why we use that phrase, the scarlet thread of redemption, of God paying the price begins in the book of Genesis with Adam and Eve, doesn't it? Adam and Eve mess up. What does God do? Not what you and I would do, which is get us a new Adam and Eve. God works with what he had. And he says, I will make myself a sacrifice. In other words, he's saying, I'll sacrifice myself for them. God's been doing that from the beginning. He's revealed that to us. A third thing, that that righteousness is acquired by faith. It's not by knowledge. Even the righteousness, it says there in verse 22, of God through faith in Christ Jesus to avoid any possible misunderstanding. He says it's not just intellectual knowledge. It's not just you reading the right, it's not you grabbing a tract and there's the four spiritual laws on it. And albeit that is a wonderful place to start. Faith is essential. You can't be saved without faith. It's not possible. God made salvation conditioned on a thing that everyone can have because He gives it to us. It's the gift of faith. He didn't condition it on your mind being able to understand. He didn't condition it on you actually having to have a Bible, though a Bible certainly testifies of the plan. For by grace you have been saved through faith, And that not of yourself, it is a gift of God. The thing you need is the thing he gives you. You don't understand it. He gives you faith. It's acquired by faith. This passage is, uh, in, in a word, amazing. You see, a lot of people can even fake faith, can't they? You probably have people in your life they actually have faith in faith. Some people have faith in things. Some people have faith in programs. Some people, unfortunately, actually have faith in church. In Jesus' name, please don't have faith in church. You have faith in God. Your faith is vertical. It's not horizontal. It's straight up to heaven. Because faith, by its necessity, has to have an object. Otherwise, it's false faith. For you to have faith in nothing is not very smart. You have to have faith in God. To him who is saved must believe first, Jesus said, that I am. It's vertical. You see, saving faith is much more than a simple affirmation of some truths. Saving faith is literally believing that God stepped out of time into your life and touched you personally with his grace and said, here's the gift. Believe on me. That's why you can't earn it. That's why it isn't just understanding. It also takes an exercise of your will. You have to willingly receive that. I can't walk up to you as, by the way, if you believe in Allah, a simple profession of the pillars of faith in Allah means you've converted. You recant those words, you're now a Muslim. That's not true with faith in Jesus Christ. You have to exercise your free will to believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, not simply utter some words. It's an exercise of will. It also involves your emotions. It's not just good feelings, it's literally the depths of your soul crying out and saying, God, be merciful to me, a wretched sinner. It's recognizing your own sinfulness you understand the but now how important that is because from the but now you get all this the transition from what you were to who you are in Christ and as i said saving faith also involves your intellect you can't just think your way to heaven it's not an intellectual exercise Otherwise, people could just come, go to a class, and they'd get enough information. You see, you you can, as wonderful as being a doctor is, as glorious a profession it is, you can become a doctor by simply studying hard enough to understand medicine. But you cannot become a Christian by simply studying hard enough. You have to have the rest of these things. You have to have your will involved. You have to understand the truth. You need to get your emotions, your intellect, all of it. It has to be acquired by faith. It needs to be by His divine revelation, and it has to be apart from your own works or legalism. That's what the answer looks like. So we wrap this up tonight. Here's the good news it's for everybody. God's righteousness is sufficient for all. There's never going to be a time ever in the history of the universe where God's amazing grace, He doesn't have just a bucket of it. And some of us have sucked up a lot of His grace, amen? You know what I'm saying. You need extra grace. You like a, you're like a grace vacuum. Because he has to cover all your sin, amen. amen. And praise God, he does, amen. amen. But God's never going to run out of that grace. He's not. Well, Jeff, so sorry, man. You were almost there. It's sufficient for everyone, and for all of our sin. It's got to be. It has to be. Because there's no amount of us that can get us there, and so His grace is sufficient for all, it says there in verses 22 and 23, and it's freely given to us as a grace gift. I love this. You see, if I had to earn God's favor, grace, again, a wonderful way to understand it, God's riches, G-R-A, at C, Christ, E, expense. Expense. God's riches at Christ's expense. Not God's riches at your understanding. Not God's riches because you finally got it. Not God's riches because you're really good. But the fullness of God's righteousness applied to your account merely on the merits of Jesus Christ. Paying for every. Last sin you have ever committed, did commit today, or will commit in the future. Man. Freely given by grace. That's why this word justified, it means to declare righteous. It's to declare it righteous. You're not righteous, you're declared righteous. Because you're still going to sin probably before you get home. We live in L.A., right? You're going to be driving down the freeway and some dude's going to be screaming by at hundred miles an hour, he's going to try and get to an off-ramp and you're going to sin in your mind against that dude. God, kill him. But do it nicely because you're going to Christianize your sin. You're going to need to be justified before you get home. Declared righteous again. Aren't you glad that that comes to you by God's grace and not by your own merit? Oh, hallelujah. Hallelujah. Is grace freely given? We use the word justified or justification. It's God's declaration that every demand of the law has been met by Christ, not by you, not by your good works not by your knowledge, not by your length of church attendance, not by your giving, by Christ alone. Price paid. Whatever it is, however much it is, a justification in a legal sense. It's a legal transaction in that sense. It's wholly forensic, based on the evidence. You need this much. And that's exactly how much is given. However good you are at sinning, Christ is better as a Savior. Amen? Amen? Hallelujah. Freely by grace. Furthermore, it's actually imputed to you. The perfect righteousness account is put into your account. God sees your account. He goes to your chart, your books. He looks at your life, and he sees the righteousness of Jesus. Filling up every box, every window. There's no NSF in there spiritually. Not sufficient funds to cover that. Pure Jesus. You've been justified. Fully righteous. God declares it so. It's accomplished by redemption. Again, the Greek word gives some different language here for us to, to look at, but in its strengthened form, it carries the idea of deliverance. In a legal sense, the price was paid. You've been delivered because the price was paid. The price was so high you couldn't pay it, and you got delivered. You were so far behind on your spiritual mortgage that you were in utter bankruptcy. And God steps into your life and says, I'll pay the whole debt. And you don't owe me a penny. It's a free gift. You've been redeemed. Which is in Christ Jesus. Only the Savior could pay that price. And that's why it says by atonement. Here's what it means. You see in the the Old Testament, the day of atonement, Yom Kippur, which we just passed over in the Jewish calendar. He uses the term propitiation. It carries the idea of appeasement. It carries the idea of satisfaction. In other words, not only did God step into your life and pay the debt, but he declares that the righteous demands of the law, which is death, by the way, have been taken care of. Everything you've ever owed was paid for by Jesus. And God says, done. Finished. He appeased the penalty of your sin. You see, what you deserve is the full blown wrath of God. That's what you've earned by your living. That's what you should get still to this day because of your living. That's what you've actually earned. But not only was the price paid, but God looks at your life and He says, I'm satisfied. That's exactly why Peter would write to the church and in First Peter in chapter 1, he said, You are not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with the precious blood as of the lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. And so God sees the blood of Christ. And he says, I'm satisfied. Jeff doesn't owe me anything. But my response to that is, I'm going to give you everything. God, because of what you did for me, you can have all of me, as Pete shared. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable Which is therefore your reasonable service. You see, because of all this, that's what we should want to do. It should just flow right out of us. How can we know Him? The answers were just given to you. It's not religion, it's not legalism, it's not works. It's a narrative that's built on the Bible. We'll get to it in Romans chapter 10. For so then, faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. We know these truths because God told us about them. It is a gift to us by faith. It's not your works. It's not church. It's you believing on the only begotten Son of God. And trusting him to have made those transactions on your behalf and to declare you righteous and to wipe away the stain of your sin so that when God looks at your account, he sees the righteousness of Christ, his son, appeasing his wrath. (laughs) Jeff owes me nothing, my son paid it all. It's done. It's provided to all, everyone, who will call upon the name of the Lord. It's given freely to us by his amazing grace. It's accomplished by redemption, the price being paid for us, the righteousness being placed in your account, the propitiation made, the appeasement of God that atoning sacrifice where God says, we're square, Jeff. We're square. The short version, trusting and believing in Jesus. Amen? Would you stand? Worship team's going to come back out. And obviously that question is the question. And so I'm going to ask you tonight that question. And if you're here tonight, maybe you're in that group of people who've trusted in religion. Maybe you've trusted in organization. Maybe a relationship. Maybe you've trusted in intellect. Perhaps you've trusted in Legalism and works. What I've just shared with you is God's plan, and it is His only plan to pay the price for your sin. And I would be horrifically remiss to not offer that opportunity tonight for you to receive the gift of grace. And so, church, believers, body of Christ, please bow your your hands close your eyes and I simply want to ask if there's anyone here tonight and you've never received that grace gift and you want to tonight this message has resonated with you and you realize that you've not ever received Christ as your savior and you recognize that you're a sinner and and you want to believe on his name so that you can be saved and have your account squared up by Jesus if that's you tonight I'm simply going to invite you to just slip your hand up in the air and I'm going to pray with you. If that's you, any of you in here tonight, you want to say yes to the free gift of salvation, just simply raise your hand and wait a couple of moments. I see that hand. I see that other hand there. Praise the Lord. Thank you, God. Thank you for being faithful to your word. Keep your hands up for a few moments. Anyone else? There are people that raise their hands. Salvation has come to the house of the Lord tonight. I see that hand as well. Praise God! Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. I see that other hand there in the back. Oh God, thank you for your goodness to us that we get to witness this tonight. Anyone else? Please, don't be afraid. Don't be ashamed. The grace of God is free. Anyone else? those of you that raised your hands, go ahead and put your hands down. And would you repeat after me? And you have to believe in your heart these things. Don't just mouth the words. Ask God to reveal himself to you at this moment. Pray along with me if you would. And family of Christ, would you just pray for those that are receiving Christ right now? Those that have raised their hands. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for Jesus. And I believe that he came to this earth to die for me. And while I don't understand all of it, I understand enough. And Jesus, I'm inviting you into my life tonight. I'm asking you to forgive my sins, to wipe out my account balance, to cleanse me from my unrighteousness, and to implant the Holy Spirit within me. I'm offering you my life in lordship. And I'm praying that you'll take control. I'm asking you to save me. I pray that you would write my name in the Lamb's book of life. And give me the strength to walk with you all of my days. And I ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Praise the Lord. There are people throughout the sanctuary tonight that raised their hands. And Scripture says if, if we will confess Jesus before men, that he will confess us before the Father. And it's just a simple thing of letting someone know that you've made that decision. And so we're going to have some pastors up front after the service. I would encourage you come and, and share with them what you've done. Or maybe share with the person next to you that you received Christ tonight if they don't know. But we want to make Bibles available to you, study materials available to you, help you get started on your walk with the Lord if you don't know how to do that. Part of it is here in church, but part of it is you getting to know the Savior that saved you. And so we want him to be able to speak into your life, so please come and tell someone. For the rest of you, we will have some pastors. If you'd like to pray, please come up after we end in worship. and I'm going to dismiss you now. Once we finish this next worship song, feel free to go. But the Lord is good. The angels are singing. Salvation has come to the house of the Lord. And we get to be part of it. That's the good news of the gospel. Amen. Father, thank you. Thank you that we get a chance to witness the most glorious thing that ever happens on this earth. Sinners receiving a Savior. And, Lord, we thank you that for each of us who know you, we've had that experience. And we pray for these that have come to know you tonight. God, that you'd root them and ground them and help them to grow. That you'd shield them from the enemy. And that you would bless them, Lord, that you put your hand upon them and tell them the way that they should go. We thank you, Lord, for your word and for the power of the good news of the gospel. Oh, Lord, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for the gospel how simple it is, and yet how marvelous. We love you, we praise you, we thank you, and God's people all said, amen. Amen.